Hello, and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we're going to have a short one today, probably, because I don't know how much we could add to the cultural discourse around Star Wars, which is what we watched for the week. Uh, but before we get started talking about a thing everyone else has already talked about, uh, how was your week? Uh, my week actually was fine. <laughs> I did. It was... Um, Yes, it was fun. How was your week? It was good. Uh, uh, we're looking looking for some sun here in California, and uh, we can't find it. So That's if you, fun. If you know where it is, Midwest, you can ship it out this way. Uh, yeah, okay, let's talk about this movie. Uh, what is your history with this uh, film? 1977, Star Wars, colon, A New Hope, but that colon, A New Hope is a new edition. Right. Um... Star Wars, I remember getting an oversized Marvel comic oh. adaptation of it. Like like, like piece of paper big or like fat? No oversized in that it was, um, it was like half a folio size. Gotcha. And it was only the first half of the, the film and I never got the second half. But um, yeah, it was the Marvel Comics adaptation... And I read that. It was a gift. It's ironic that it was Marvel Comics. Disney owns everything, everybody. It was a gift. um, and Because Marvel Comics later on bought the rights to do a a whole run of Star Wars comic books. And I know that there are books Mm -hmm. and like cartoon series as well as the... Is it now... Nine films. Um, I think it, we're up to nine. So, yes, I believe it's nine films. <laughs> it's three distinct. And trilogies. then there's uh, it's nine, three trilogies, and then there's also these sort of offshoot films about um, right, Han Solo and stuff like that. And Rogue One was one. And I had no yeah. idea at the time that when I saw it, I knew that it was a big, important film, at least important to all of my friends. I had no idea that it would become. What it is now. No, I don't think anybody who made right. it at the time, especially, knew. I mean, if they knew it was going to be that big, they would have put stars in it. And right. who they put in it was not stars. Right. I they, mean, there's stars now, to say that sounds well, silly, but there were, Harrison Ford was a carpenter and a drug dealer. <laughs> they, pot, he sold pot. Everybody right. calm down. There were recognizable faces in the film and recognizable actors, but for the most part... Yeah. Um, George Lucas had a thing about hiring well-known supporting cast and then, so when you're watching THX, nobody knew at the time who um, Robert Duvall was, but oh, they'd, okay. they'd known Donald Pleasance from his reputation. Oh, so he put Donald Pleasance in THX and then he put Peter Cushing in there. Right. Wonder where his influences come from. Oh, wait, right. it's actually Japan is where his influences come from. His influence is very heavily Japanese. This is, uh, I learned that later on. Well, yes, yeah, so, um, we're not gonna do right. We're not gonna do a play-by-play of this movie. No. So when did you see it for the first time? You, I didn't, you see, didn't see it for it when it was years seven, and years and years. When you were seven, right? Because um, movies yes. and also I think well, seven is probably about an okay age to right. watch this. But I didn't get to see it for years and years and years, and it wasn't until and I really forgot about watching it really for the longest time. It just went out of here. The best thing that it did, I think, was for me personally, was that it it. Once that happened, science fiction moved from being this sort of genre for kids on Saturday matinees right. into a mainstream. Right. And so suddenly, uh, UHF stations who had tons of old science fiction movies like the the Italian Space Patrol movies and the Operation Hydra and all those things, th- they were made into mainstream programming. So yeah. I could watch them anytime I wanted to instead of waiting for uh, like some... Obscure showing it at uh, eleven o'clock at night on Creature Features or something. Right, and it also started. It started to help cement the idea of a blockbuster. Right, right? which it had started earlier. The, the very first summer blockbuster, really, we're going to be seeing that too, was The Exorcist, and that I was. I thought it was Jaws. Right, Jaws happened after, but the idea of a film that came along and just sort of changed the public discussion and everything. Um, oddly, was that film was a horror film. And so was Jaws, actually. Uh, This was more of a big kind of summer fun movie, and George Lucas admits that. 
Yeah, and I oh, I'm thinking mm. summer blockbuster. Right. And and The Exorcist came out in winter, as is appropriate. Right. Um, so yeah, okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't, I didn't actually look when this came out. When did it? What time? It seems this does feel like a summer movie because it's a, y'all. I hate to break it to you if you are not aware of this. This is a children's movie. It was made for kids, but right? Not it was made ones. for young people. May twenty fifth. Yeah. So yeah, so it was. Um, and again, going in, going into the history of the making of this film, those are legends too now. Right. There's right. all sorts of stories. It, that's the thing. Like, and they're constantly being retconned by George Lucas himself. <sighs> yeah. So I didn't see this movie. Mm-hmm. I think this might be my first watch all the way through. Right. So you're genuinely coming late to this. Yeah. So what did you think of it now? I liked it. Okay, y'all. I was not excited. I was super not right. excited to watch this movie. Um, I was more. Ex- I was like five percent more excited to watch this movie than I was to watch Fatal Attraction. This is a rough month for me. Although mm. I'm actually good with the back end, especially given the world and the Titanic, and right. I'm excited to talk about that. But we're gonna put it off until we do that. But I was just like. The first Star Wars film I ever watched, and I'm putting air quotes around that, was uh, The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. No. What was the first one of the second trilogy? God, you guys also... The the first film of the second trilogy? Yeah. The, episode one. Right. Okay. Is that The Phantom Menace? The Phantom Menace was the very first one. Okay, so that's the uh-huh. one. So, in college, I was a freshman in college, that's right. when that movie came out. Um, we stood in line overnight to get tickets to the midnight showing when it opened because there was no online ticket sales for the Fremont, the old theater in downtown San Luis Obispo in 1998, 99, whenever it was. I think it was 99 because I think it was the second half of my freshman year. And so we stayed in line overnight to get tickets. I got tickets to the midnight show. Like where my group was, it was actually split in half. Half got uh, midnight tickets, half got 3 a.m. tickets for opening day. And I did not care about this movie. Please Mm. understand. But all my friends were going to go. And I was in college. And yeah, I'm going. I'm going to stay out all all night to buy these tickets. And then I'm going to go to this movie. And I went into that theater. It's a beautiful old theater, Egyptian-themed, because they always are for some reason. Egyptian, yeah. (laughs) that's it's a, like very a super common, common thing. Uh, with with like beautiful velvet high back chairs. Right. And I remember sitting down and looking around. It looked like a starry night in the on the ceiling. I was like, this theater is so beautiful. And the trailer started, you know, the the, the pre-roll for right. the movie. And before the credits, I fell asleep. Wow. And I slept entirely through the I felt really bad for the group of friends that were in the three o'clock group that I should have just taken their ticket. Like it just yeah. It, it's yeah. Uh, so I don't. I, it's not a good move for me to start a movie at midnight. Turns out. So also how what happened to me the first time I tried to watch Casablanca. Mm. It was like twelve thirty in the morning, and right. I'm like, yeah, let's watch this movie. Nope. <laughs> Which is interesting. How much you wound up liking that one. Mm-hmm. So then, I remember Star Wars being on the background on Saturday afternoons when I was right. a kid, but I didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was I was old enough where I was like, well, I'm not going to fucking watch a kid's movie. And now it's fucking, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of properties. We watched The Mandalorian. Yeah, actually, I haven't watched, I think, the, the entire second season. season. Right. Um, or the third, third season. season. Um, uh, we've watched some of Boba Fett. I've seen the most recent trilogy. Those are probably my favorite. I did like Rogue One. We haven't seen Han Solo. Mm. so Or Solo, I guess it's called. So I'll watch an adventure movie, like, okay. But they don't have any nostalgia for me. Right. I just, I just don't have that connection to my childhood and to these characters. So I'm coming at it sort of as an outsider where I'm like... And, and a big part of it is... The the line of Skywalker men, I want to punch all of them in the face. They're all whiny, day-to-day mediocre mm. white men that I don't have any fucking patience I for. I think Luke Skywalker, over the course of the three films, grows as a character. I'm sure. In this and first film, he's very much sure. kind of 
but I don't wanna. And right. and that's I mean he's supposed Literally, to be written that right. way, but it just and then and um, I think Hayden Christensen does a really nice job of carrying that through in mm-hmm. the in the middle trilogy or the right the second release the first it's also just the. The godhood that has been put around George Lucas by both himself and the rabid fans of this also just makes this is where the series lost me really was when it began to take itself too seriously, and it was fun. But this was also the beginning of, I think, as far as I understand it, toxic fandom. Yeah, and I remember that because I I know that Starlog magazine was a science fiction magazine that did articles about. Star Wars and Star Trek, and yeah. and, yeah, and the, that that weird, you can only like one right. of them. I'm like, if you like science fiction, you're kind of or right. fantasy or both, mm-hmm. like both of them. I well, don't so understand. There was a lot of that, and I remember, and I have somewhere in my collection here some of the old Starlog magazines that featured things about you know, Flash Gordon serials or old Harryhausen films. And there are actual letters going, why are you including all these old-fashioned things? Let's get articles about the most minor characters in Star Wars. What about the giant space worm? They actually said that. The giant space worm was re- in the Empire Strikes Back was really interesting. Let's do, why are we doing articles about Flash Gordon and, and uh, Logan's run? Hilarious to right. me because George Lucas tried to get the rights to Flash Gordon. That is... Right, around exactly. uh, trying to build this around that, he couldn't get the rights, so instead right, he exactly. turned to Kurosawa's *The Hidden Fortress*, which I have seen. I saw before mm-hmm. I watched this whole movie, right. and um, the parallels are uh, shocking. Yeah, it's not shocking, just so obvious. I I, I saw *The Hidden Fortress*, um, and that movie is fantastic. Oh yeah, and talk about moving of the female princess from just this kind of... And again, Carrie Fisher's off again, on again, English accent. What is happening? She's she, such a baby, too. She has scenes uh. with... Uh, I like how she attempts to match English accents with Peter Cushing at one point, uh, who's yeah. really great. Peter Cushing yes. has a lot of fun in this movie. Alec Guinness is very good, right. yeah. Yes. And, and so, yeah, those are the stars of the film, are, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you have actors like David Prowse, who we'll later on see in God Help Us, um, Clockwork Orange. Right. And, but you don't uh, see him in this, yeah, you right? Do. Oh, okay. you see, well, you don't see his face in this right. movie. He's Darth Vader. Yes. Yeah. He's the body of Darth mm-hmm. Vader, and he did the voice, or he did a voice on set, and then they dubbed him, dubbed right. over him, which... Well, then we're going to have to dub over him sucks. anyhow, because I don't think that talking through that... Through that thing was... Thing yeah, was going not to be in really 1977, effective. they weren't going to be able to put right. a mic in there, but... But it sucks that right. that he didn't get to. But do so, that. as I was saying, this was the beginning of kind of toxic fandom, which was really sad. And, and it hasn't gotten better. It hasn't gotten better. It's gotten the, worse over the time. The episodes, like the recent ones mm-hmm. with with females, people of color in the uh, starring roles, are you know bombed by white supremacists uh, and misogynists. Dante Mosley, my good friend Dante, who's just like. There ain't but one black man in outer space when he's talking about Lando Calrissian, yeah. and he's a pimp. Like, and it was funny. Like, yeah, there's only one black man in all of outer space, and yeah, he's kind of a shady. Yeah. He's hidden on Princess Leia. He turns them in. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, elements of George Lucas's other work, and mm-hmm. on those grounds, it would probably be a fun movie on its own. What it's grown into. Is completely almost out of control. It's it's wild to me the idea that like there isn't a misstep. Like some people right. think that, and I'm like, mm. well, I'll tell you a misstep that we had with this film is we could not find the original copy anywhere. Yeah, I didn't. Had to get I a, did not want to watch the CGI sort of retconned mm-hmm. version of no. the movie that George Lucas put out, but apparently. That's the only version you can get streaming. Right. Now, if we could buy a DVD, probably of the older, uh, or maybe even a Blu-ray of the older version, the original version, but man, you can tell too. Like it's not subtle. It's not. No, there's a, a scene that was shot with Boba Fett, which was actually in the comic book, and uh, that I had, that was not in the film. There's also a scene where he talks to Biggs. There was actually more 
more nuance and more character development in the comic book, which was taken from an early version of the script. Right. And so the characters even look and act a little bit differently, some of them. Because this, this was a long movie for the time. It's right. just a, well, it's, I think the release uh, runtime was the 155. The right. version that we watched was slightly over two hours. Not a lot, though. Right. Um, but that's but, still a long time for that time period. They weren't. Do, to, we had left the epics right. of, like 15 years before, and so movies were like thir- 90 minutes long. Right. Um, <laughs> Mostly because they were gritty as fuck, and you couldn't really sit well, there. You didn't want to sit there for yeah. another couple, another half hour to watch another half hour of Taxi Driver, right? Right. Travis Bickle. That's that's all the story you needed out of him. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, shit! I don't want to. That, that, yeah, I need I need enough time to go into the sunlight and and get right. a little bit of a bath. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the case of uh, of these films, it's and we also noticed that with Close Encounters, Steven Spielberg was also a film fan, and so he wanted right. to bring back the idea of something on this huge scale, yeah, like Kubrick had done. Yeah, they're obsessed with Kubrick. They're obsessed with Kurosawa. Did he they're, finish? Is what? he the one? Is Spielberg the one that finished Eyes Wide Shut? Yes. He okay. Did. All right. And contributed a completely nonsensical closing scene that I had no. At the end of that film, I'm going, well, it's like uh, the curate's egg. The story about the curate's egg. Well, he can't say anything bad about it because he's a curate. It was like, well, parts of it were excellent, you know, even though it was undercooked. So there's... I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, okay. I, okay. I don't even understand the word that you're saying. What's a curate? He's a minister. Oh, okay. And he's given an egg. He can't say anything bad about the egg he's being served, given his profession. He doesn't want to offend his guests. No, you hosts. have... Well, also, you're a guest so, in the house. You can't say anything So he, when he's asked how the egg is and it's undercooked, he says parts of it are excellent. And so that's kind of the... Okay. The feeling. I've never heard that before. Right. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, but I so I remember watching the Hidden Fortress years after I'd seen the original Star Wars and thinking, "Holy shit, this yeah. is this is the film." I it mean, has especially everything. the R two D two, yeah, C three PO. They're they're men, right. in Kurosawa's film, but they are basically identical to right. the to the two characters that yes. we see in the like. They're the clearest, but it's also just. The the you know the underdogs attacking right. the fortress. The, the thing is, and I noticed that in this viewing of the film, mm-hmm. um, there are a couple of action scenes, person on person action scenes, not the racing spaceships, right? Which Lucas already did with uh, American Graffiti at right. the time, and with um, THX. There's a car chase in there. And he's very good at that. Mm. But the person-on-person conflict scenes, he, it's, they just, like, what is he doing? He's right. cutting at the wrong moment. He's doing stuff like that. Because um, he was a pretty green director at this right. point. Yeah, but actual physical interaction action scenes, he does not do very, he didn't do very well at the time. And Have you ever seen George Lucas interviewed? R- yes. I don't think he's He's not very energetic. It, but also, I just don't, mm. I am not diagnosing anybody. Right. But if you told me that he was diagnosed as autistic, I'd be like, "Yeah, that seems right." right. Well, I, I think he's on this on. He's neurodivergent. I think he doesn't seem to be a person who has a deep understanding of mm, human interaction. Right. But I mean, and I and that comes through in yes, all of these movies. Yeah, I think that uh, Harrison Ford told story, who's not afraid of basically anybody. He does not give a fuck. Um, told uh, stories about how he. Um, during the making of American Graffiti, that they would have scenes shot by the assistant director while George had fallen asleep because he was so into the notion of setting up these very complicated shots at night and they were lit right. by dashboards and things like that, that he would actually drift off at some he'd point just be, and they would just be going. Himself. Right. Yeah. But, and and I know his scripts are rewritten and right. he doesn't seem to and mind Harrison Ford to also make them that. sound like people or something. In Lost Ark, he and... Uh, Harrison and Lawrence Kashtan actually changed the script. And under Spielberg's nose, they, they you know, he just thought this script is awful. Goes up with Lawrence Kashtan who wrote Body Heat. Yeah. That guy, who's a really good writer. He's a very good writer, yeah. And they go into a hotel room in Tunisia and start just typing out on an old typewriter new copies of this of uh redoing scenes from the film. And and, and specifically we're talking mm. about the dialogue. Right. right. We're not talking about changing plot no. aspects or whatever. It's literally that these and I think Spielberg is better than than right. Lucas. 
his understanding of how humans interact with each other feels very limited. And it feels like he relies on a lot of things he saw in the movie. Like, well, yes, how people talk to each other. There's a moment... There's a moment in this film, because he loves Kurosawa, and Kurosawa, of course, is one of the... If you haven't seen a Kurosawa film, why the hell are you listening to this? Yeah. Go watch a Kurosawa Go watch film. watch Kur- and literally any one of them. Right. He's, uh, but when you're, he's, uh, in Yojimbo, the film that, I, when you think about how Kurosawa really influenced people, because Sergio Leone saw Yojimbo, and he did the, the yeah. Dollars trilogy. Right. And then John Sturges saw A Southern Samurai and does... He is the magnificent. He seven. is very much a muse for almost every yeah. director to come after him. Right, exactly. And I kind of want to know who he well he had looked a, up to. Here's but. the interesting part because he loved John Ford. Oh uh, yeah, that feels right. Uh, and so did Orson Welles. Like, a lo- and yeah, that's yeah. true. I think that's one of the reasons that Americans love his work because there is that reminiscence of right. the old, like something about a western, something about right. this old which. Makes sense in samurai films too. It's it's, a it's around similar, the same time period, right, right? But it's also just a similar vibe and right. a similar thing where we built up these skills and the world doesn't need these skills exactly. anymore. Yeah. Um, but when uh, Kurosawa, a lot of his experience, because I read his biography, was he had the this really traumatic life in many ways. His brother committed suicide. Uh, there was a huge earthquake in Japan, and his brother, who was mentally ill actually dragged him and forced him to look at the corpses being dug out from Jesus. these fallen buildings and kept telling him, this is how life ends. Look at these broken bodies. This Woof. is all that we are in the end. And then he later committed suicide. But he And so there's a lot of his actual experience in the movies that he right. does, and that's what comes across as more convincing. There's a scene in Yojimbo where um, Mofuni's character, who we don't know who he is, he's in this very ragged kimono. And he's always keeping his hands tucked in it, which is really funny, which in the end is smart because you never know where his hands are. Right. And the first time he's approached by the the, the gang who runs this town, he cuts one of their arms off just very quickly. And Kurosawa mentions, well, when I was a little boy, uh, they were militarizing Japan. And they had a, a sword instructor who came and practiced cutting for us. And they had a straw dummy set up there like a human being. Yeah. And this guy did a lightning draw and just in one cut more or less took off this yeah. straw dummy's arm they said as a, as a boy I just sat there staring at the arm because I felt like it was real like I'd just seen something real and it terrified right, me right. and that's what made my that's what made it into the film Yojimbo watching Star Wars there's a scene in the, the cantina yeah. where Obi-Wan Kenobi does the exact same yep, thing yep, yep. and it's a shot for shot replay of that scene and you're going but this is George Lucas having watched Kurosawa, right. who not had the actual from experience. His experience, right. yeah. Um, it's interesting because there you can see the work of you can see in a director's work whether that was pulled from muses or right. previous yeah. things that they've seen but not experienced, and then versus the filmmakers who are making things from experience, like John Carpenter, mm-hmm. would not have made the movies that he made right. had he not gone to Vietnam. Like, yeah. period, end of discussion. Uh, I, Oliver Stone as well. Mm-hmm. Um, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg haven't really... They By the time, and I, I, I want to see the Fablemans because I want to understand that about <clears throat> Spielberg, is that he really fell in love with movies and he at times is repeating scenes from other movies. Right. And, so, and unabashedly, he right. won't lie about it. Yeah. Later, he started stealing people's work. Well, and this in, is interesting. In a real way, talking to way. a friend of ours, Alan, um, he talked about how Lucas. I don't think that he saw this as becoming this level of success, Mm-mm. and he eventually began claiming authorship for things that Ralph McQuarrie, who designed all the production art, went. Got you. And um, they really, they really <laughs> built up that. Autor mm-hmm. um, myth is it's yeah. a lie. It's like well, there are auteur directors, billionaire. No, this, the fuck you this are. This is not so one like, of them, right? Yeah, no. Well, yeah. there are. There are. I mean, but <laughs> there's people who, and Kurosawa could be one of them. Although he freely admits to this Taking, person helped me, this person right. helped me, this person helped me, and this is what inspired but me. But the other thing is. I don't mm-hmm. care if you have an auteur director. Mm-hmm. Movies don't get made by one, one person. One person, no, not at all. Period. 
It's the contribution Especially not of movies with any budget. Mm-hmm. You know, the, <laughs> the writers are on strike, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're the ones who come up with all of the things you right. love. They should be paid for that. And not... And it's not it's not the director. The fact that producers win the best picture mm-hmm. award right. at the Academy Awards drives me fucking batshit. Right. <laughs> what you you right. saw something in someone else and you get an award for well, it. Well is basically what again, the is. producer is the Danny Ocean of you know, he puts the sure, team together. Sure, he puts the team together, sure. <clears throat> so there's that. I mean and, and if So what so what you're saying is he's a good coach. Right. Mm-hmm. Not even coach, manager. Right. He's like That's a team the best manager. way. And if, and a really good manager or good producer will do something like inspire the team, keep it going, keep ever keep run interference for the director. And that's when you hear stories about people like uh, Val Luton who just like I'm going to run with this. We've written the story. This is what we want to do. But I'm going to, you basically, I'll guide the director and, and we'll, we'll have a vision of what we want to produce in the end. But otherwise, I keep my hands off of it. Right. Or somebody like Charles Schneer did for Harryhausen, which is Harryhausen didn't direct any films. He directed the scenes in his films. Right. But Schneer was just like, well, here's a guy who has a talent that nobody else can do. Nobody else can do, right. So what I'm going to do is just, I'll get the money for him. And even though it limits us thematically in what we do, the third Sinbad movie, something like that, we're going to keep doing it because we're just going to keep putting this on the screen because there's an audience. I'll make sure this artist doesn't get interfered with by the the studio. Yeah. I'll keep running interference for the artist and just keep going. I'll keep keep getting money. You know who does that now? Who? Jason Blum. Blumhouse. Right? He will give basically anybody $5 million to make a movie. Are you getting a penny more? No the fuck you aren't. Mm -hmm. And... He makes enough movies that make hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. That, yeah, here's five million because it's fucking nothing, right? right. And he is pretty hands off. Yeah. He'll be like, you got an idea? Cool. Bring me a movie. Here's five million dollars to bring me a movie. Yeah. Um, and that can end badly. Like the that Boy Next Door movie with um, Jennifer Lopez in it. Mm-hmm. There is a very bad uh, physical effect. Like... Uh-huh. At the end of it, because they had run out of money, and they went back to Jason Blum, and he was like, I gave you $5 million, I don't know what to tell you. And so they cobbled together a head full of jelly, basically, like a mannequin head full of jelly, and that's what it looks like on the screen. So, there's there's good and bad there. When we're, like, discussing, like we were earlier, the physical action scenes, Mm -hmm. um, Kurosawa was an actual martial artist himself. Okay. So when you see this scene, there's a scene in The Hidden Fortress where where Mufune is chasing a guy down on horseback. I don't know if you remember that one. And he's standing up in the saddle with a sword. Yes, 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 That is impressive as hell. Yeah. And when you think about as simple a trick as having the camera move at the same speed as the horse, and then think, oh, that must have been... 1958. Really hard to do, right? (laughs) Yeah. Tracking along. But it's really impressive when you see that. And everyone who's seen the film goes, God, that was scary. I wonder if... He he probably Wells too, right? He would would have probably seen Orson Welles films, right. um, and those long tracking shots. Yes. Get, like oh, we can do this. We just have to figure out how to do right. This. And so that was, but you get when you're watching, for instance, in this film, Darth Vader and uh, Obi Wan Kenobi dueling. It he does not know where to put the camera for this. No. And you're looking at it, and he's getting close-ups of the actors' faces and going, but wait, this is a sword fight. Look at my feet. We should be, right. Look at my feet, right? You should be pulling back. The same thing with John Wick, right? Right. Which we... Which Which was Bruce Lee's thing, which he borrowed from... Fred Astaire? Fred Astaire, right. (laughs) Where he's he's saying, I don't want them to think anybody else is doing this. Mm. You need to get me in a full shot so that they can see this is Fred Astaire. But also... Right. My feet are doing the work. Yeah. The top of me is just bouncing up and down. Like, that's right. not... A, that's and nothing. so it's like the, the physical... That interaction and also the interaction of of people where in one minute, like the trash compactor scene, which is really funny. Yeah. Right? And then they're all hugging and each other at the end of that scene because they all got out alive. And the very next scene, they're all at each other's throats again. And yeah, you're going, the, wait, how did that... I, yeah. I thought everyone was like, they're hugging. Oh, why were so... And there's a really funny bit that happens where 
C-3PO is like, hears them screaming that they're happy they're alive and goes, curse my metal body. I, my reflexes weren't fast enough. And it really is funny. Yeah. And then it cuts to this, oh, no, why are the princess and other, Han Solo yeah. still mad at each other now? Yeah. It's like oh, a it's second ago. Oh, the uh, sexual tension, apparently. Right. And I have to say, too, the movie really picks up with Harrison Ford. For sure. He just, because you do have a whiny sort of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And then like, you have this princess who doesn't know if she's from England or not. Yeah, her voice <laughs> does keep changing. It's wild. And then you and have... And she has just right so much charisma and also chill. Right, exactly. That's what I was about to say. His chill is really good. It's just... Because everyone just else like, is so earnest in this mm-hmm. film. They're very earnest and they're coming at you like it's a fairy tale and they're really going to try to deliver this and make you believe it. And you see the best performances in the movie are Harrison Ford and Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness who are just very relaxed Yeah, in their performances. Like, yeah, I mean, okay. Guinness and Cushing are relaxed because they've been doing this for right. decades. Ford's relaxed as he's high as fuck. <laughs> Let's be clear. But yeah, this but he's also really... All, all, the whole time they were filming this movie. He's but really he funny. just has this... Uh-huh. innate confidence in him. Right. And whether he has it in real life or if that's the mask that he puts on to be Harrison Ford on screen, mm-hmm. I don't care. But you re- Either one. I be- It's believable. You get a sense when you're watching him, you're watching a star. Yeah. You're watching somebody who just has the ability to pull you in to their performance. And... You know, and... and all of them, the three, uh-huh. all three of them get there. Right. Mark Hamill, especially in a voiceover capacity, uh, he's fine. He's good mm-hmm. live action, but what he can do in a vocal booth is right. incredible. Oh, magic. Um, and of course, Carrie Fisher is who needed to do more comedy because she's she very really funny. she was she's very funny, um, and just. Like, I just hate, you know, you see her, she's 19 years old, and mm-hmm. you're just like, shit's going to get bad for you for a little while, and it's like, and that's hard. That's really hard to to see, but, um, but she, you know, she holds her own for yeah. being 19. Uh, I think she holds her own because she has, they apparently all got along really well. I can see that. Um, and uh, there's the... I think the funny scene that I mentioned to you with Peter Cushing, where she goes on about, she's trying to do her English accent, I recognize mm. your foul stench, and oh, yeah. she tells George Lucas, I can't say he smells foul, he smells like clean linen. He so delicious. <laughs> He's lovely, I can't say these this mean is, things to Peter him. Peter Cushing is, Cushing is a man who wore smoking gloves so that his hands would be clean right. to shake hands and exactly. be around That was what like, Mark Hamill said, and Mark Hamill was like, I was so in awe of everything that he and Christopher Lee had done together, right. that when he was on set, I was. I, he didn't have any scenes with Peter Cushing. No. Not a one, but he showed up there because it's like, oh my god, it's Peter Cushing, right? right? Yeah, no, if Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness were on the set that I was working on and I didn't have any scenes with them, I'd be like, awesome, I get to go watch them work. I want to see, especially as a starting actor, it's like, how do you, how do you, um, who is it, Simon Callow, I think, was the actor who says, you know, it doesn't matter how big you're projecting as long as you fill it from the inside. Yeah. And so you're looking at someone like Christopher Lee doing Dracula yeah. or whatever, or you're watching Peter Cushing doing Dr. Frankenstein. It's like these are these parts that could very easily go over the top, right. but they're making them believable by just... Believing them. Believing them. They, like, believing, right. they believe it first. Right. The actor has to believe it first. And sometimes you see when people don't. Yeah. And you're looking at that going, and I, I don't want to name it's any examples. It's why Nick Cage works mm-hmm. even... When it's insane, because he because believes, he right? Believes it, and also these are also actors. These are not they mm, method actors are actors too, right. but they are able to be in and out of a scene mm-hmm. like a person and right. live a life. Um, I just read that there's going to be a movie made with Jared Leto and Evan Peters, <laughs> and I was like, that set's going to be a fucking nightmare right. because both of them are very deeply method in uh-huh. that in that only white man way because it seems like mm-hmm. the only people who have to be so method in, and in it to be the to the point of being a fucking monster are white men i don't understand it uh, yeah uh, but 
I'm just like, that set's going to be... Method acting is not necessarily a bad idea. No. I think what they're doing also taken isn't to self-defeating ends, which mm. is, uh, you know, which is what Brando did. Right. And it's, I'm sure that Brando, the effects, when you're watching something of like On the Waterfront or one of the, one of his important films, that that was, it's better to watch than to actually participate in. Like, I can't, can't imagine the hell that other actors went through dealing with him. Although sometimes he apparently showed up and was just very fine and professional, and other times he just, I'm going to read score uh, cue cards. I'm not going to actually um, memorize my lines. I'm just going to show up and I'm going to do an accent, you know, th- that kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's largely also, yeah, like I pull up method acting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because my understanding of true method acting right. is really it's a matter of you, you have to be in the character, right? Right. But the way that you do that very often is, when did I feel something like this? Going back to that place and living in that. Because you can't be this other person. That's not how people work. Like, you you can't do it. But I looked up notable method actors. Brando, James Dean, Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix, Christian Bale, Daniel Day-Lewis, Robert De Niro, and Al Pacino. Hoisman right. all across the board. And was it Olivier told right. one he of them? Right, was doing Marathon Man. It was that what, oh, you was should that, try acting. Dustin Hoffman. Right, Dustin Hoffman well. literally was keeping you himself from the acting. Person, right? That's right. Like, it's called acting. We're, right. We're literally playing pretend. You do not have to torture yourself for the torture scene. No, you don't. You don't. You have to put yourself in a place where you felt tortured, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I don't know, maybe you haven't had that experience. Right. And there are reasons, like, I think it's totally fine for an actor to spend three months with yes, of course, a group of people that live this life to maybe... I'm like, an aviator, I'm a farmer, or I'm an a, you know, something monk, like, monk right. or something like that, where you don't get to talk for 30 days or whatever, mm-hmm. and you do live in that life, but on right. set, just yeah. stop making the 100 people around you's life fucking miserable. Would right. you please? Like, I agree with George Clooney on this. Like, if you're an asshole, we're not working together, because I'm here to have a good time. Like, we're making entertainment. Mm-hmm. Even serious shit. Like, we we right. don't... We are living the literal dream. Why would we make our work life right. bad? Like, why would you do that? That doesn't make any king sense. So, but yeah, just white men need to. But you know what it is too. I think I bet, mm. and not to say that none of these men had a hard life right. or anything like that. But of all of the populations in this country, who has suffered the least? So you really need to get right. into a different mindset because as a white cis man, mm-hmm. what what have you suffered, like, in your soul? Maybe nothing. It's possible nothing. Which which also goes to Spielberg and George Lucas. Right. Which is, and why it's like your people talking to other people is a little... When I read about... Because I read Lucas's biography years and years ago, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, biography or auto? Uh, biography. Okay. And he, uh, there was a period of time when I was in high school where I was very curious about all this because Return of the Jedi just came out. Uh-huh. And one of my schoolmates, actually, his father was an engineer who designed one of the uh, miniatures that was used in the show. Oh, cool. If you ever watch Return of the Jedi, they're flying inside the Death Star, the new Death Star. Uh-huh. There's a huge engine room. That's the other thing. He built they that. just keep building right. the same thing over and over again. That's the other thing that kills me about these movies. I'm like, we don't learn? No, it's cool. bigger this time. But anyhow, yeah, so that, that whole chamber was designed by this guy's dad. And and he got to work with George Lucas' people. And so there was a huge interest when I was in uh, high school. Yeah. Just, well, my sophomore year, it was that was going on. And um, and so that, was sparked, uh, that sparked an interest again. And so I read the biography, uh, Jordan Lucas's biography, and he talked about his, um, his. But again, the fact it that was in, in the early '80s. Right. There was a George Lucas biography. Right. And is wild. He his he did he had an experience where he got into a very serious car crash. Oh, okay. And he, this was when he was drag racing. 
And so that's why there's an element of speed in all these films right. he does. He does not drag race himself anymore because, he, you know, he, he can't. He learned a thing. Right. Uh, which, uh, but at the same time, not knowing what being neurodivergent was about right. then, there and were I, things I, in the book. I legitimately don't know, but right. I'm just saying it wouldn't I, surprise me. There are things me. in the book that really give the impression. Okay. Like, um, and when I he think was, that's probably true of a lot of right. high functioning or like high achieving creatives. Right. Oh, no, no. That, that, right. That's, yeah. But he would do things, uh, the one I remember, and again, some of these stories wind up being apocryphal, but that he would, uh, he would just snip off locks of his hair in the editing room if he couldn't get to the bottom of a particular editing problem. Oh, almost like the, that thing where you pull right. your hair out. But he but would he just would take a pair it. of scissors, the editing scissors, and just cut his hair. And that uh, oh, one that's of right, because they were, cu- they were right. editing on film. Back Ooh. in the old days. Y'all, that would be so stressful. Was, Holy shit. That was a nightmare, because <laughs> that's how I learned. Yeah. Was, you know, and in this case, you had the cement and you had the tape, and they wouldn't let us use the tape at the classes, I, or the cement in the classes I was taking. So we did it with tape, and the tape would come apart sometimes, yeah. or it would yeah. get stuck. I mean, you, just, you see that in, in old movies right. where they show a film, and then you're like, right. <laughs> because the tape broke. Wild. Uh, I literally, the, what I edit mm, this podcast on, right. it's a thing where there's no loss. Like, I'll cut something out. Uh-huh. I can always get it back. Like, I can't even imagine snip, snip. Oh, what's going on? The worst part was watching you get stuck in the Literally projector gate. Literally on the cutting room floor, right. right? You're watching the projector gate, and when you're watching the film in the projection room with your friends there, and it gets stuck because the tape is too thick in the projector gate, uh, and you watch the emulsion get burned off right. because of the lamp. Yeah. And then it burns right through the film, and then it just keeps flipping around. And then you've lost that. Right. Not even to the ground. And we didn't have copies. Like, it was just, right. <laughs> and I understand. To God, if you have, you have literally given him a burnt right. offering. You're just like. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah. So he would, when he couldn't quite manage something, and he had a work print to work from, so it was a little bit more of a safety net with an actual film, a professional film. But. They would take out like baskets that were filled with his hair, um, and so that's what also made me think. That's interesting. In retrospect, yeah. oh yes, he. So but it he did like an anxiety disorder. Right, he did, <laughs> and he and it did stem from the fact that he was in this big car crash. Um, mm. But so he may also be dealing with like TBIs, right? At, at the time, right. But I think that now, it's this. He has the same issue that I've had with Steven Spielberg, which is once he became. Popular and because we there were star directors back in the day. Sure, um, John Ford. We mentioned John Ron? Ford or Orson, Orson Welles. Wells. Although Orson Welles was always kicked to the side because people didn't He's like him. Fucking what? Was um, he a bad person? No. As a matter of fact, he was. Were know, people jealous of him? There was a lot of that. <laughs> there was a lot of that. How dare he you? He also was come a person who would say, "Yes, I can make this movie for X dollars," and then be like, "I'm going to need five times that amount." Well, he he. See, also was, James Cameron. <laughs> right. He was one of those people who had no problem tweaking the nose of wealthy directors or wealthy producers. Harry Cohenberry. He, he was very right. comfortable in his own skin and didn't give a fuck. Right. Sorry. So when, um, when... But he, he also probably thought... He, he knew he was a genius. It's right. never good. He kind of good. did. Uh, never, when you buy your own hype... But see, the thing is, he's one of those cases where it wasn't... Necessarily, he really was. He, yeah, but it can turn you into an right. insufferable prick. See, also John Lennon. Right. And, and in, but like he started yeah. buying his own hype and became an insufferable prick. That's not in why his he was case, killed. But like, uh, there's like a a very famous story where he's shooting Lady from Shanghai and he's shooting it with his Orson Welles with his then wife Rita Hayworth. Okay. With her long strawberry blonde so hair. Beautiful. And the first thing he does is get her to cut it all off. And dyes it platinum blonde. And the producer of the film, Harry Cohn, was like horrified. What have you, this is my sex symbol. And now she looks completely different. He's like, yes. And then he goes so far in the film is where she has lines in Chinese. Um, it's really a fun movie. And That's it's interesting. Wild. But he was just that kind of guy. And, and from what we know, he's actually really as gruff and aggressive as he was at times. He was very decent. He yeah. and John Hausman founded the first African American theater company, and they right. were doing. And he also did Othello in blackface, so right? Let's, he, which is weird. There's, but he did that. Yeah. He, 
<laughs> he and Rita Hayworth supported uh, the young Mexican, uh, the Zoot Suiters, who, um, mm. who were accused of, of murder, and they were basically really being mistreated by the system. Yeah, yeah. And so the two of them as a couple did things. So and she was, well, a, she was Latina, right? Right. Yeah. And but uh, no, they couldn't tell anybody secret that. Secret Latina, right? Right. So, so in that respect, he was, but he was also very much, kind of a force of nature. But anyhow, that's like star directors, and I think that what happened is that you had people like that and Kubrick and whatever, uh, who really made their names and made these careers, and then you had this second wave of that with. Spielberg and Lucas and people who really wanted to achieve that same level of notoriety. Yeah. And often they did it by kind of imitating what these people right. had done before. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. that's what artists do. Right. Um, but be honest about it. Like, don't yeah. claim originality when we all saw the, that movie too. Right. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, and I know, I understand, in 1977, maybe you steal the entire movie of The Hidden Fortress thinking right. very few people are going to see it, yeah. not knowing that in 20 years, anybody in the world who wants to see it can see right. it. Well, there's also, um, I mean... And they're going to say things like, he stole this from Star Wars because mm, people are fucking dumb. There's a, there's a film called, on a much smaller scale than this, uh, Friday the 13th, the very first film, yes. right? It... And several, a, a couple of the sequels to it, they're directed, I think, by Sean Cunningham. Borrowed entire scenes out of a Mario Bava film, a very dark I mean, comedy. If you're gonna make right. a horror film, Bava. That's that guy. Has not a bad idea. Not a bad person to go Bava to. Bava did a really gruesome comedy called mm-hmm. Bay of Blood. You don't have to tell me. You right. <laughs> Bava did. You can just leave out really gruesome. I know, and right. then you can save this. But yeah. he did I like, don't think he did any non-really gruesome films that I'm aware of. Um, he did some adventure movies that still had gruesome elements to them. So I'm he, saying. he was kind of a, on the dark side a lot. But um, which is funny because his sister was a nun and he was a very devout Catholic himself. So it's it's one of those things. But anyhow, um, this guy Cunningham had built a lot of his reputation by essentially just sort of milking this one Baba film of all of these scenes, and. And there were people who, up until that film got released in the States, had never seen it. Of course. And his film didn't get released, in, uh, and by and large. I mean, it got released in grindhouse theaters or whatever, because it was too gruesome for the mainstream. But it got released, I think I saw it. The Baba film? The Baba okay. film, finally, in like the early 2000s. I'm like, what the hell? This is... This, this, this is Friday the 13th. Right. right. And it even takes place in a remote lake. And, you know, it, it was just... Now, too, that's right. such a trope yeah. that you wouldn't think, well, Friday the 13th stole from something. You'd think, well, this right. has been around forever because everybody goes back to Friday the 13th right. and does that same thing. So everything starts somewhere. Yeah. This one started in Italy, apparently. <laughs> um, what was also wild for me while we were watching this movie was how many lines mm-hmm. in this movie are just oh, colloquialisms now. It's like now. Shakespeare now. It's wild it's like shakespeare it's you know and which is a not a great comparison for for shakespeare but in that people will say things like uh, you know to be or not to be or right (laughs) and in this case there's a whole generation of people those aren't these are not the droids you're looking for i say that that's no moon right there there were like eight or something like that um oh you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go to the imdb and look at the quotes here's a question while i'm looking at quotes sure is this the first movie where pew 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 was the sound of the guns or is that a Flash Gordon thing? I think it's this movie Ben Burt I think is his name was a sound designer and he was a man with a wild imagination he did crazy things including I think the Millennium Falcon is the sound of a lion's roar okay um the the um the laser the blasts were actually made by rubbing something metal against the uh, high tension lines which reminds me almost of what was done with Godzilla with it's the contrabass string and the, the rosin rosin covered glove and he did a lot of wild and creative things and i think that's one of the things you can respect about this film the most is the fact that there were so many great technicians who just got to go wild with it 
Yeah. Yeah, okay, so here's some quotes. Mm -hmm. In addition to the ones that we were talking about, this is not the droids you're looking for, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope, is a thing that you'll hear people say. Uh, Use the Force is a thing that you'll hear people say. The Force is strong with this one. Right. That's one. I think that we should say we seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot of life (laughs) more often. I think the most quoted line ever, including in other films, and that George in a Lucas long did, time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right. is a um, thing that people. I have a see. bad feeling about this, which they say constantly in this and every film in this, every installment of this franchise. Somebody says that at least once. I have a bad feeling about this. Uh, situation normal. Mm-hmm. That scene fucking cracked me. Oh out. yeah, it was, and that's entirely. <laughs> Uh, Harrison Ford that felt like Harrison Ford playing into him doing his weird voice this mealy voice um, but he yeah it was that was really fun yeah yeah so I mean there are just just tons of just now they're just colloquialisms right and I would I would I would wager that there are Gen Z and younger kids who who say who hear these things and do not know what they are attached to Um, unless they have millennial parents Maybe. and Gen Z parents who have forced them to watch this stuff because mm-hmm. that's what millennials and Gen Zs do. They force their media onto their children. I never really got that from my parents, but yeah, <laughs> the kids of my friends at least mm-hmm. get that a lot, which I think is actually good. I'd like it to go both ways. Though. Right. you got to watch what your kid's watching, too. See what's what that's about. Do you have anything else? Oh, well, is it thrilling? <laughs> is it thrilling? Yes, it's thrilling. Um, yeah, it definitely belongs on this list, right, for sure. It does. It's, it goes, too. It like, moves at a clip. When you're done with a scene, uh-huh. when you feel done with a scene, mm-hmm. the scene ends and, and you move on. <laughs> George Lucas's sense of pacing has always been very yeah. good. Yeah. I think that he improved a lot as a director as time went on. Um, yeah, agreed. And I think that part of that was like, for instance, a lot of his better work is working with um, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and they rein each other in. I think in. they they both they right. rein each other in, but they also like sort of not not in a race with each other, but to work alongside somebody or near somebody who does great work makes right. you work harder and yes. do great. And, it's and like the Del Toro in your right. to Quaron right. trio, right? Where they're not trying to outdo each other because they do different things. Yeah. But knowing other good creatures yeah, like There's not a monster, I don't want to do it. Like I need a monster, exactly. I need a ghost, I need a zombie, I need something. And Quaron's like, my monsters are people. <laughs> Yurito's like, hold my beer. This shit's going to be weird. <laughs> Quaron, uh, he could he could totally, and that's just something that Del Toro has always told him, you should be directing horror movies as well. Absolutely. And he's like, because his film, The Revenant, has horrifying scenes in it. There are terrible things in there. But What he did at the, in the Harry Potter franchise right. was really pivotal in transitioning that from kids' movies to... Not grown up, right? But certainly a darker, scarier kind of world. Yeah, everything because there Which was that needed at that. There point. was still an element of Disneyland mm-hmm. with the first two films, and even as dangerous as things got, and largely because Chris Columbus mm-hmm. directs kids, and also they were a lot, but they were kids, right? Like, it, this is dark stuff, but they're also we got to remember that the, both the audience and the the people involved right. are children. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so. That's Star Wars, you guys. We've actually talked about it for way longer than I thought we were going to. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I don't know what to tell you. It's on Disney+. Plus. You could see it. And I do recommend it, actually. I was going to say no. But it's good. Yeah. Next week, we're going to watch The Maltese Falcon. Okay. I've never seen this one. That's going to be interesting. Either. And I'm excited about it. Uh, So we're going to watch that for next week. In the meantime, anything you want to in in what's the word I want? Anything you want to recommend? I have not. I haven't seen. I haven't finished anything enough to recommend it yet. I'm gonna recommend something I haven't finished. That's the bear. Y'all probably have watched this. I am late to it. I literally just started Mm -hmm. watching season one three days ago. Time is wibbly-wobbly, and we're kind of in the past from when you're going to be hearing right. this. So I will have finished. I'm 
halfway through season two as of last night. Yeah. So I will be finished with it because this thing is shorter than the first trilogy of Star Wars. <laughs> right. The two seasons of this show are shorter than the first trilogy of Star Wars. Uh, you know, they're half an hour episodes. Right. Um, but it is... Fantastic. And I know that the first time I saw it, I was kind of put off because there's so much yelling. I started watching it uh-huh. and I watched the first two episodes. First, the, I watched the first episode and I was like, the way that it was cut uh-huh. and edited, I didn't vibe with. Uh, they only did it that way in the first episode. Yeah. And I think I understand now into it why they did it that way. Right. Um, and then the second episode, yeah, all yelling. And I was like, this is traumatic. I have worked in a kitchen. It wasn't a kitchen like that. Mm-hmm. But I do remember what it's like to be in the shit. And I right. was like, I can't with this right now. What I also, r- the overarching grief uh-huh. that just sits on that first season like a blanket. Right. I wasn't in a headspace where I could watch it. What I found about this, the, the end of the first season, the beginning of the second season, is that you eventually begin to actually care about the people. Yeah. And in the second season, there's some episodes like the one that you're going to see, apparently, where one of the characters just really, dis- who you don't really think has much going on, really distinguishes themselves. Yeah. And, is that the witchy episode? Right. Yeah. But with, uh, in such a way that you begin to really respect this person you didn't respect before. Yeah. He's he and they've been building towards right. that. And that's it. Nothing they, comes by a complete surprise. There's no sudden mushroom on the lawn where oh this is now a developed character. No. Yeah. Once again, right. the writers are on strike and we stand with them. The writing in this show right, is, is exceptional, fantastic yeah. because they and the way that it is truly an ensemble. Right, like yes, you have the main characters, which I would say are the three: they're Sydney, right. Carmi, and Richie. All the all the ee sounds because Chicago, but they really flesh out right. all of the people around them, which is important because that is very yeah. It, it's it's reminiscent of a kitchen. That's how the, kitchens work. There's an episode. Also, can we pay cooks more? Like, yeah. Okay. There's that's an episode. A there's a, a flashback episode that's uh, the only one that's, I think, longer than a half an hour. And you have a cast that has Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. and Oliver Platt. I think that's the next Sarah one Paulson, I'm going to watch. Yeah. Bernthal, John Bernthal. John Bernthal, all sitting around a table. And when he came in the when I we mm. saw when spoiler alert, John Bernthal is in the show. And uh-huh. when we saw him for the first time, I like screamed. <laughs> I like like a little scream because right. I was like in my room doing work, but I was just like, <gasps> "What great casting for what that role is!" Right, exactly. He, although he is great casting for basically any role. I, like I think he's. Great. I didn't have a great. I mean, I it was, he was just another guy until I was actually watching the Punisher, yeah. the Marvel series, he's and it's fantastic like in the, Punisher. the way he was able to take this character, which basically could be another. I mean, he was kind of in Lee, in the same degree as like the Rambo characters in the eighties. Who shoot him up, kind of, but he reaches into this character's grief, yeah, to the extent where which you is really, super important for that character. Right, you really feel it's like, oh, he completely humanizes. He doesn't want this person. He want and that me was doing this. right, and this was totally the reason why I think that the the Netflix Marvel kind of universe, yeah, Jessica Jones, with the exception of Iron Fist, which was not. Great. I. Like the second season of Iron Fist. Right. I think they found their... I, I think Iron Fist is a tricky property to right. do. But if you want to do The Defenders... Yeah. <laughs> but just that group of actors really found somehow, eventually in that case, but they would get under the skin of these these people. And yeah. then they were, they were people. Yeah. They were... Once again, who's uh, helpful? Yes, John Bernthal plays that character beautifully, but the writers right. are doing... Very really good, good work jobs. for those. Yeah, I liked him in the Tank movie, uh-huh. uh, which I can't remember Fury. the name of. Fury, that's right. And the that fire jumping movie with Angelina Jolie. Okay, I don't even remember that one. Um, he's also great in The Accountant, which is a movie that oh. I love deeply. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so excited that apparently there's going to be another one, but now there's a writer's strike, so maybe there won't ever be another one. But yeah, The Bear is fantastic. It's on Hulu. Um, 
like I said, it's mm. what, what sixteen? No, I think it's eighteen episodes. I think the first season is eight. The second season, I believe, is ten. Right. And so it's eighteen episodes. All of them are half an hour long, except the finale of the first one is like forty-five minutes. Mm. And so I assume that that might be the case for this okay. one, but I don't know. They may have just extended the season length, and then they don't have to do that. Uh, but it is brace yourself because yeah. there is a lot of yelling. But fundamentally, but it these feels are very good authentic. people. Yes, they are. And and compelling it's and you get to grow with it which is really good yeah it's it's yeah it's really good so we'll leave you with that Mm -hmm. maltese falcon for next week y'all if you haven't watched it watch it i don't know anything about it okay apparently there may be a falcon but i'm pretty sure it's not a local author it was written in a i believe it was one of the the things that dashiell hammett wrote sitting in a steakhouse in san francisco across the street from where i used to work right (laughs) yep like i walked past that I was like, and they have a, a falcon, like they right. have, like it says, like there's all that stuff. In the meantime, if you have questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook by searching Latecomers Podcast in the search bar. And you can find us on Twitter-ish. I want to remind you to please, please take your medicines. And we like to remind you, better, better late, late than, than never. never.